Hey, uh, Jimmy Valentine, that was a really great game-winning score you had there at the sporting event. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate that. You can look for that card really soon at Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics. They got tons of sports memorabilia. Jimmy Valentine, RKO Radio News. Jimmy, what makes Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics your favorite comic store in the Colorado area? I'm telling you, forget about it. A comic collector like me, I can save 20% on a hold slot. Duh. Plus, it's hard for me. I'm on the road all the time. If I want the amazing Spider-Man and I'm not around, it's in my hold slot. Jimmy Valentine, what do you have to say about your recent allegations about steroid use? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question, but I am going to tell you that if I want to get Magic the Gathering cards, I go to Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics. <laughs> the little square Jimmy Jr., he loves those. So go to 6700 Wadsworth Boulevard in Nevada, Colorado. They'll take really good care of you. Hold on, Jimmy. One Jimmy, more question. One more question Wait, no, no, don't go yet. Does this sound familiar? You're interested in purchasing that new action figure, but aren't sure if it's worth it? Well, come check out PlasticExplosion.com, where you can go to find all the latest and greatest action figure previews and reviews. Every week, they'll be bringing you reviews and picks from your favorite collections, such as DC Universe, Masters of the Universe Classics, Marvel Universe, Star Wars, Transformers, and many more. Come check us out at PlasticExplosion.com. That's PlasticExplosion.com. Barbecue that can't be beat. Try Birdman Barbecue Sauce. Available and original and spicy. These robust full flavor sauces have the awesome power to kick your taste buds in their face. And for that smoke and taste on everything you eat, try new Birdman Smoke and Rub. Caution! Meat left unrubbed may suffer from flavor performance anxiety. You can pick up Birdman Barbecue at local area Ace Hardware stores. Ruff's Barbecue in Golden, and the Danny Cash Hot Shop Off-Broadway. You can also like us on Facebook at Birdman BBQ. Welcome to the podcast. I am Ryan. In front of me is... Brad to my left is James and welcome to another real interview this week we are interviewing Paul Salmon who is uh, a film historian he is so cool he is and you know what's cool I love that the film community is so nice to us and sits down with us because there is an intimidation factor when you're dealing with people that have worked on Blade Runner that have worked with people on RoboCop and things like that that you say why would they talk to us but you really you learn very quickly that they're just like us and they love movies like we love movies and they love to sit down and talk to them yeah and this guy wrote an amazing book about just blade runner that was 600 pages long it's called future noir future noir which is a great way to describe blade runner yeah and he has so many stories about the production pre-production of blade runner he, he was brought on really early he was didn't he, he was telling us the story about how he would go to the offices with ridley scott and the offices were horrible while they're pre-planning this yeah. movie and he would shoot documentaries for it um not only this movie but robocop um he mentioned return of the living dead well i brought that one up yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but he's just a really cool guy and one, so friendly one we we ended up sort of like moving around when we were going to interview him and we were trying to make it work and trying to make it work and finally we got some time you know and so he could have just like you know, sat down and, and like, interviewed for a while. No, he sat there for well over an hour, right, Brent? How long? Mm-hmm. How long is it? It's it's, it's hour, long, yeah. um, and you know, I'm so generous with his time. S- totally worth it because the guy is just a wellspring of, of of great stories. 
Um, but yeah, just the fact that he was willing to do that and spend that much time with us was so was so gracious. It was. So let's go ahead and roll that interview, and then we'll come back after the interview. Are you ready? Cool. Yeah. Welcome to another exciting interview here at Tell You Ride Horror Show. I always want to say Horror Fest, but it's not. It's Horror yeah. Show. Uh, I'm Ryan. This is James, and we are sitting with Paul and Salmon. Mr. Salmon, welcome to Real Nerds. Thank you for sitting in. We hey. really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me here. This so you, is, This is so cool because just yesterday when we met you and we started talking to you, I was like, this, is, this man is a, a wealth of, of stories that, you know... It was it was just amazing to talk to you for like four minutes, and I was like, "Oh, this is going to be so exciting!" So <laughs> it's really great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks. We, we appreciate it. So you started in movies a really long time ago. So how about you take us on a journey, and how did you get into the movie business, and um, what did you do before, and just, just re- take us on a journey? Okay, sure. Uh, a really long time ago is kind of a relative term, <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I was in college in 1970, I happened to go, um, I was in a private college, and I had always been a hardcore film buff mm. and also uh, a literature person. I, I, I actually went to college for two degrees. I have a degree in abnormal psychology and a degree in English literature, but forget that i was into like <laughs> i was into like you know any kind of horror movie that came out or any monster movie that came out yeah. on, on or science fiction or film noir or something that was really experimental or a fellini movie or antonioni or godard or you know Truffaut. i mean because uh, a lot of it just had to do with luck and timing i was born and uh, came of age in a time when they had things like the international the golden age of international art cinema where everyone thought that those directors I just mentioned were going to change the whole face of filmdom. You know, this is long before George Lucas and Spielberg. I mean, this was adult filmmaking that was really pushing the envelope, and that that's what you grew up on, right? Mm. So that's what I was into. And uh, I happened to be in a class in college where a guy named David L. Wolper, who was a very famous producer, uh, he did Roots, among other things. Oh, wow. And um, his, uh, a friend of his said, well, come down to the school and just do like a little talk. And so I, said, I, I went to the talk. And afterwards, I walked up to him and I said, you know, gosh, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a college kid and all that. I'm not in the industry. I don't know anybody. But I just wanted to tell you, I know your stuff and I know your documentaries. And, you know, and, and I guess he was surprised that someone knew, you know, everything. Well, not everything, but a lot of what he did. So he said, well, you know, there's this movie being shot uh, by a guy I knew named Douglas Trumbull. And I go, I know who Douglas Trumbull is. He did the slit scan effects for the Stargate at the end of you know, yeah. 2001. And he looks at me and he goes, ah, you really are in the movies. <laughs> I go, yeah, you know. And, I, and, and he goes, well, he's making his directorial debut. And it was a thing called Silent Running. And it was shot essentially in a decommissioned aircraft carrier in San Pedro, California. And it was being mothballed and it was due for demolition. But they used it for their location to be like the interior of a spacecraft that had one of the last forests of Earth, and it's in orbit around the world because the whole Earth has been covered in concrete, and the forests are now in orbit. And then the, the word comes up that the government's cut the budget, blow up all the forests. And the guy who is the lead in that, Bruce Dern, snaps, kills the other people on the, on the, uh, on the satellite, and takes off to the rings of Saturn to save the last forest. Wow. His only companions are these three tiny little robots called Huey, Dewey, and Louie. <laughs> <laughs> and inside of those robots were 
three, either three young men and one young woman who were all what they call bilateral amputees, which meant that they had both legs missing, either right. through a birth defect. One guy had been run over by a train, and I think two of them were Vietnam vets. Wow. But they literally walked on their hands. That's how they you know, did the, the, the robots. And my first job in the movie industry, I didn't get paid at all. I was, I was lower than a PA, <laughs> was to help suit those guys up, right? And I, they wouldn't even let me, the first AD on my first day, of, AD being an assistant director, I see the, the lunch, you know, being laid out for everybody. I walk over and he puts his hand on my chest and he says, you can't eat with the crew. He goes, he goes, there's craft services table, which is just basically a card table where you have snacks. And he yeah. goes, that's where you guys eat, you know, and that was my introduction to the movie business. <laughs> So, you know, it was actually, it was, it was good because it, it, it taught me the reality, <laughs> you know, yeah. in a sense of it. But um, to compress, uh, I kind of drifted in and out during the 70s, but I was also doing a lot of writing. I've always had parallel careers. Mm. I was writing for magazines like Cinefantastique and Cinefax and uh, uh, old, uh, well-known and well-regarded fanzines like Photon, which no one remembers now. Um, but at the same time, people like Joe Dante, who I didn't know, the director, was writing for these same magazines. John Davison, who is one of the guests okay. here tonight, the producer of RoboCop and Starship Troopers and Airplane and movies like that, he was writing for the same magazine. And um, one thing led to another, and I wound up working at Disney on The Black Hole. And I wrote a double issue for Cinefantastique. And uh, the next thing I knew, they kind of offered me a job to go down to the Comic-Con in 1978 to oh, promote wow. it. Now, you have to understand that the Comic-Con in 1978 was dinky. You know? <laughs> yep. It had maybe 2,000 people. Yeah. And it wasn't the big corporate megalith it is now. And it wasn't <clears throat> excuse me, as um, film-centric as it is now. It was more like comic books, and it was more like just craziness, and it was the late 70s, so things were still kind of open and free. Mm -hmm. But I brought the black hole down, and I was one of the first, what they now call genre marketeers. And another one was a guy named Charlie Lippincott who brought Star Wars down in 1976. And he wound up being the producer of the first Judge Dredd movie, the one with Sylvester Stallone, right? right? So anyway, I, uh, one thing led to another, and I wound up at Universal, and I worked at Universal for five years, and I went from being a genre guy to being a, a junior vice president of uh, domestic publicity special projects, which basically meant nothing except that <laughs> I, anything that the rest of the people didn't understand or didn't want to do, I did. You yeah. know? So I was kind of like the guy in the corner that they said, oh, I don't understand this, or this is too weird, or I don't want to get my hands dirty. Oh, wait, salmon's down there. (laughs) (laughs) So I learned, you know, that's how I paid my dues. And I wound up working on quite a few films. And uh, at the same time, I helped them start up their electronic press kit department. And so I was out shooting EPKs, which now would be the supplements and DVDs. But this was the, the video version of those. And I must have done, directed, written, and produced maybe 100, 150 of those. Wow. And a lot of genre things. Some of them have wound up on DVDs, like the Ro- one of the RoboCop discs has got one of mine. Um, 
You did a you did a Blade Runner, is that one? Well, no, uh, the Blade Runner one was actually put together by uh, Jeff Walker, who was actually working at Warner Brothers in the same capacity that I was working at Universal and at Orion Pictures. So that's really Jeff Walker's work. Oh, okay. However, well, we'll get to Blade Runner in a second. Um, <laughs> calm yourself. I know, calm yourself. <laughs> no, I just, anyway. Um, uh, and, I, and, I, and I really am giving you the condensed version of this because oh. it, it went on for years and years and years. And I was fortunate enough to be at a period in the studio uh, hierarchy where things were flexible. And there was a lot of stuff they didn't understand about science fiction or horror or fantasy. And, you know, I, I consider myself uh, very eclectic in my tastes. I mean, I love all the genre stuff, but I also love, like, Herman Melville, and I also like Cormac McCarthy, and I'll also read, yeah. uh, well, you, you know, I read a lot of mainstream and or what they would call fine literature. Right? Yeah. But I also love just equally, you know, stuff like Reanimator, you know. Yeah. I, I, my benchmark is quality. Yeah. Mm. If it's good, I like it. So I, through my writing, which was going on at the same time I was working at the studios, uh, I had met Philip K. Dick for the first time in 1973 wow. when he was doing a lecture <clears throat> at Cal State Fullerton. And <clears throat> at the time, I was um, actually making my living. I'd just gotten out of college, and I've always been fairly athletic. And I was working as a commercial diver off of Catalina Island uh, in a 40-foot boat that I had, and I was a diver, and I was diving at about 100 feet uh, for a company harvesting by hand the seaweed. And we would work eight days on and three days off. And the only way you could get back and forth from Catalina to the mainland was either take the uh, what they called the boat, or they used to have little seaplanes. And I'm sitting in my little tent, because it was really primitive back then. They, we were all living in 20-man army tents. You know, and there was no, there was one water tap, you know, for like 30 guys. And you had to, you had to, you would rinse your wetsuits off and lay it on the gravel there. But you had to be careful because the rattlesnakes were all there, you know. And, oh, but we'd eat rattlesnakes. We'd catch them, cut their heads off, and they taste like chicken. They really <laughs> they, do. They do. I've had they, rattlesnake. Yeah, rattlesnake really at, is good. Uh, Rodizio Grill. Yeah, they're good. <laughs> it's delicious. Yeah, it is. It's very tasty. But, we, you know, this is like, we, we caught them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You didn't have him on the door, just give it to you. Oh, man. Anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm off. It's my first day off, and I, I pick up the Avalon newspaper, and in a tiny type it says, noted science fiction author Philip K. Dick will present a, a lecture on his work at Cal State Fullerton. And it happened to be the next day, and I said, oh, hell, I'm there. Right? <laughs> so yeah. I, I got on a seaplane. I went over to San Pedro. I had enough money at the time uh, where I could afford to rent a car and drive up to you know cal state I, I found some funky motel six or something where the roaches were bigger than i was <laughs> but that didn't bother me i went and i saw phil's lecture uh it was very short uh it was mostly academic and college oriented but like all fanboys when it was over you know i walked up and i said you know first thing i read by you was the father thing in 1959 and that little short story completely blew my you know my mind mm -hmm. And I just wanted to tell you, I think you're an excellent author, and I don't think you're just a science fiction author. I think that you've got a lot going. And I guess the flattery worked, you know. <laughs> so he, he actually gave me his home phone number. No way. And so I said, you know, well, okay, you know, but I'm never going to call, right? <laughs> so <clears throat> a few years go by. And by this point, I'm actually getting more and more into the studio system and also doing a lot more writing. 
And I, I happened to go to a cocktail party. Phil didn't go out very much. He was agoraphobic, and he also was ill. He had a heart condition. A lot of people don't know this, but he was—he he, from from childhood he was not in the best of health. And um, I, there he is at this cocktail party, and I go, oh, you, "You probably don't." And he goes, "Yeah, you were the diver." <laughs> and I went, "Wow," you know. And he said, "Well, wow. I said the only reason I remember is because I you're the first diver I'd met," you know. And I said, yeah. "Oh, okay." So we, and I'm a little older now, so it was it was just you know not a friendship, but just an acquaintance. Yeah. Well, by 1980, um, I'm working at Disney, and I'm in the publicity department, as I said, and you know bringing the black hole down to the Comic Con, and I'm, I'm starting my career, and I'm also getting a lot of notice for uh, things that I'm doing for Cinefantastique and LA Times and things like Cinefix magazine and I was I was writing a lot to support I and my wife basically and um, I see in the trades Variety says dangerous stays based on the novel you know do androids dream of electric sheep yeah. uh, you know it's going to be turned into a major motion picture and I called up Fred Clark who is the editor of Cinefantastique and I said I said, I'll kill. I'll do anything. <laughs> you know, I'll just give me, you know, just, just, just give me the go ahead and then I'll say that I'm legit and I'll see what I can do. He says, okay. The next call I made was to Omni magazine. Now, people don't remember Omni, but it was a, a very slick, a hard science oriented magazine that was done by Bob Guccione, who did, you know, Penthouse magazine, oh, yeah. and it was I know that. yeah exactly, <laughs> and, and and it was just it was just as uh, slick and you know just as high end as Penthouse, but it was all hard science. Yeah. So I said, look, I said, um, I'm going to do a lot of re reportage for CFQ for this, but I'm going to if you want because I've written for them before at Omni. I said, if you want, why don't I do a series of like three articles slanted towards you with a, a more technical, hard-edged approach to it. And I did one on Sid Mead, one on Phil Dick, and one on Ridley Scott. So as early as 1980, I was writing about Blade Runner. It wasn't called Blade Runner right. yet, you know? And um, when Ridley Scott got hired, I went over to the place that they had on what they call in L.A. Gower Gulch because it's on you know Sunset and Gower, and it's one of it's the old Hal Roach Studios where they did the Keystone Cops, cop, you know, comedies and all that. <laughs> and the Blade Runner production offices is up in the funkiest, like you know, I mean, you, you walked up the steps and you worried that you were going to make it to the top because <laughs> it was like creaks, snap, you know, it was awful. And uh, I met with the producer, uh, Michael Dealey, laid out what I wanted to do. I said, hey, you know, here's what I've done in the past, you know. And he, he looks at me and he goes, you're a little different from most journalists. And I said, well, I'm not really a journalist. I think of myself as a historian, but I'm also in the business. And he goes, you're the first person I met like this. And I said, oh, there's a few of us around, you know. But I said, i got to be honest with you, you know. I really love Ridley's stuff. And he goes, alien, right? And I go, yeah, but I saw the duelists. Uh, and a big smile because he goes, oh, you want a five, you know, because <laughs> not a whole lot of people. It was at the uh, the Royal Theater in Santa Monica. And I, I saw it when it first came out. And I liked it. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, oh, man, you know, Ridley Scott, this is going to be, you know, really something. So Michael and I got along. He says, OK, come on, come down the hallway and meet Ridley. And Ridley and I talked for three hours. And it wasn't an interview. We just chatted. And, you know, and Ridley's, you know, he's got like laser, you know, intensity and he's in pre-production and he's like on the phone and doing stuff. And in between, he'll, you know, talk to me, but he never kicked me out and he never treated me in any condescending way. And it was like, you know, just a, 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 an intelligent focused chat. 
About a week later, I got a letter from Michael Dealey on official Blade Runner stationery that said, we've all talked about it, and they said, whatever you want to do, you can cover this entire movie. They said, just stay out of the way. And (laughs) I knew what that meant, right? So I did. And I spent, it was a 55-night shoot on the Warner lot, and then about maybe 20 days that they shot in varying places like an ice house out in Vernon, a meat locker where they did choose iLab. Um, the Bradbury building, of course, which they redressed the front of, you know, with these barley columns. And, you know, they changed it slightly. Yeah. Um, the interior of the Bradbury, uh, let's see, the Ennis Brown House, which, of course, is, you know, the very famous Frank Lloyd Wright House. Uh, you know, they d- shot the exteriors. I was around for all that. And then I would go back to my day job at Universal, and I literally didn't sleep for like about three or four months. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. And I, and I just kept writing. And it all culminated in 82 in not only the Omni articles, but also the Cinefantastique double issue, which really, for some reason, struck a chord. And so I'm all primed to see. I had seen, by the way, uh, because I became friendly with the editor, Terry Rawlings, he would run cuts just for me because I'd be around all the time and I'd, I'd stick my head in and I'd say what, what you got up on the movie L and he'd say eh, come on in you know and I'd see like sequences cut together you wow. know and I'd see stuff that you know never got the light of day until Char- Charlie you know de Lazarica put together the 2007 excellent five you know disc set that he did for the right. 25th anniversary but I saw all that stuff when they were shooting it I go to the <laughs> premiere in Westwood and it was one of the few places that had the 70-millimeter print version. And it's 8 o'clock on Friday night, opening night of Blade Runner. And there's maybe 14 people in the theater. Oh, wow. And I, I'm like, whoa. And then that stupid narration comes on. Yeah. Now, the narration divides a lot of people. I understand that some people <laughs> like it because, you know, it's the old film noir, you know, type of uh, trope. Uh, and it, 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 to a certain extent, it helps orient you to that world. Right. But it doesn't need it. You don't need that. You know, you, if you strip that away and you pay attention, you still get it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the narration always was intended to be there. It was in the very first drafts. And then Harrison Ford came on board. You know, Dustin Hoffman was originally going to play Deckard. Really? And, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and they, oh, Dustin Hoffman Man. was, like, involved for, like, three months. And uh, eventually, I mean, they were having readings all the time with him. And, you know, and they were, he was going to play him like a kind of Ratso Rizzo from Midnight Cowboy, like this yeah. tough little bastard, you know. And, you know, and, and they just basically, it, it, there was a lot of dithering going on. And so it just didn't come together. And then through Spielberg, um, you know, Ridley Scott heard that there was this guy, Harrison Ford, and he knew him from Hound Solo, of course. But right. he said that there was this thing coming out, you know, that was, uh, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so they flew to London from L.A. to meet with Harrison. And Harrison literally came off the set wearing the Hulk outfit. And they had dinner and they hired him on the spot. And so that's how Harrison Ford got hired. But Harrison Ford reads a script and he sees all this voiceover. And he goes, you know, I get what you guys are trying to do. This is like the old Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe, you know, 40s film noir stuff, you know. But you're, you're talking about a lot of stuff and not showing it. And the stuff I'm reading about showing, it's not showing him being a detective, you know. So that was the big problem at first. And they said, why don't we – and this is the exact opposite of most actors, by the way. Most actors want more dialogue. Yeah. Harrison wanted less. 
he wanted more action. He wanted you, he, he wanted you to see Deckard detecting, right? And so that all came in. The whole thing with the replicant thing, whether he was a replicant or not, came in very late in the day. Mm. And it was kind of a mistake. And Ridley Scott got a little confused because Hampton Fancher, who wrote the first drafts, ended one of his drafts with Deckard at the keyboard of his piano. And all of a sudden, his hand clenches up like Roy Batty's fade out. And he wanted it to be kind of ambiguous to yeah. say, oh, you know, wow, he just did the same thing that, you know, Roy Batty did. Maybe he's a replicant, you know. But it was never meant to be like, you know, laid out, you know, big neon letters with a sign. <laughs> I am a replicant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never meant to be that. David Peoples get hired to essentially do a, a dialogue rewrite and, and add a few things, including the detection stuff that, right. you know, that Harrison wanted. He does a speech towards the end where an original ending is that Rachel and Deckard are on a spinner and they're being pursued by Gaff and another spinner out of the city into this wasteland. And Deckard goes into a voiceover where he says, now I know what it felt like to be chased. Now I knew that like Roy Batty and I were in a sense like brothers, you know, trying to find our makers to see how much life we had left. Hmm which was a poetic way of saying I'm just human and, you know, like I'm being pursued and I empathize yeah. with mm -hmm. it. Ridley reads it and goes, oh, fucking fantastic. He's a replicant. I get it. <laughs> and, and, and David said, no, I didn't. And he go and really didn't hear it, you know. Yeah. So then he goes to Harrison and he goes, we're going to make you a replicant, but we're not ever going to say you're a replicant. Maybe you're a replicant. And Harrison hated the idea. He goes, he goes, well, where's the human change? You know, he says like Deckard starts as his burnout and he falls in love, but he's damaged goods. That's how Harrison described the Deckard character to me personally. He used mm -hmm. that word more than once, damaged goods. He says, falls in love with this thing, you know, and then gets redeemed and gets his humanity back. Well, that makes no sense if he's like one of them. All that got thrown out. Right. But then Ridley, very slyly, while production's going on, kept sticking little things back in mm. and not telling Harrison. <laughs> you know? And Harrison told me this great story. And it's in my second edition of uh, Future Noir, which was published by Ryan Publishing as a hardcover in 2007. And it has a 10,000 word interview with Harrison Ford at the end of it, wow. which the uh, domestic version of Future Noir does not have. And he lays it all out. Harry lays it all out. And, and he says that they got to the point where he picks up the tinfoil unicorn. And he looks at it. And he does the scene and, and really goes, well, you know, this means that, you know, that uh, Gaff was here and he, he let, you, you know, let you guys live. And Harrison turned and he said, I don't think so. He says, you're trying to suggest I'm a fucking replicant. <laughs> and they had this big argument right there, you know. Oh. So... <laughs> You know, whether Ridley has either, yeah, isn't that funny? I oh, mean, you know, funny. it's like, so he was like really against this idea, you know, but it yeah. was, it, it, it was never set in stone. And yeah. the whole unicorn dream that came in very late in the day it was never scripted, by the way. And the whole thing that you see in the unicorn going through the forest, there's mm -hmm. this old thing. It's about like a test for legend. You know, <laughs> yeah, the movie, yeah. that's totally untrue. No, I'm it was shot exactly for Blade Runner. You know, it was done in a place called Black Park, which is where the old it's in, it's outside of Shepperton Studios. And it's where the old Hammer movies were shot. A lot of them where they were out in forests with all the ferns and all that. Mm -hmm. And um, that was one of the last things shot for the film. Never scripted. Right. And uh, the whole point was that it was this idea in Ridley's head that nobody really got. 
that you know that that the way he described it to me, Ridley described it to me, was look. He said this movie, on a sense, is about paranoia, and he said, you know how doctors, if they're surgeons and if they're into like communicable diseases, they'll go through a phase where they think they have the disease, you know, and yeah. they get they get paranoid. And he goes, so that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm just trying to be ambiguous and suggest that maybe. Deckard is the same thing that he's hunting. Now, Harrison took that to mean, no, yes, I am. But at the beginning, it was never meant to be anything more than a suggestion. Now, time passes, and Ridley either forgets or maybe decides it's more advantageous to say that I always said he was a replicant. But as someone who was there through the whole process, <laughs> always meant to be a suggestion, never meant to be a reality. In fact, Harrison Ford, in the interview uh, in the second edition of Future Noir that I referred to earlier, addresses that. He says, I have nothing against ambiguity. It's finality that I hate. And that's a direct quote. So he would have been happy to suggest that Deckard was a replicant. But to come right out and say he's a replicant, he hates that. And I think there are a lot of people – this is one of the biggest debates about Blade Runner – and for years, 30 years, I've been trying. It's in Future Noir. It was in my uh, uh, things that I did for Omni. It's in the original Cinefantastic thing that maybe he's a replicant. Yeah. It was never meant to be final, you know, but people want to believe what they want to believe, you know. So now everyone, including Ridley Scott, says, oh, yeah, I always meant him to be a, you know, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Somebody want to ask me a question after like 25 <laughs> minutes of nonstop chat? No, I figured so, you were just going to keep rolling. I, so I have a uh, quick question. So you mentioned earlier that there's only 14 people at the premiere of Blade Runner. Yeah. And it didn't well, this do, was in Hollywood, in Westwood, actually. It yeah. didn't uh, do as well, but it's really caught on as yes. it's gone along. What do you attribute to the success of Blade Runner after the fact? There are a number of reasons. Uh, the first one was home video, mm. without a doubt. Um, when it came out, uh, you got to remember this, you know, it's so funny because I look back on the summer of 82, which now is considered to be like a golden, you know, genre of summer. And I worked on like half of those movies. <laughs> I did. I was in Conan the Barbarian, you know, I was around when the thing was being shot, but of course wow. that was somebody else who was, should we, should... I was going to Star Trek two also. Uh, yes, yep, nice. yep. Star Trek Two came out. Uh, 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 the Road Warrior had come out the year before. Um, Tron, you know, all of these movies. You know, I mean, it was just this amazing summer. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, in fact, I know one of the biggest problems was that people were expecting a different kind of movie from Blade Runner with Harrison Ford in it. You know, they yeah, had seen like Indiana so. Jones, you know, and then they'd seen you know this lighthearted adventure of you know and uh, Han Solo, and then they get to this depressive, dark, always raining, you know, future where everything's falling apart, and their hero's an alcoholic who shoots women in the back. And, yeah. you know, that it just, like, they weren't ready for it. It was way ahead of its time. And as Ridley has rightly said, sometimes it's just as bad to be ahead of your time as it is to be behind your time. And Blade Runner definitely was a movie ahead of its time. Yeah. And also a lot of people, I think, were totally confused by it because it was such like an overwhelming visual avalanche. You know, you, there's just like, what the hell? You know, it's like this so incredibly detailed future. 
And uh, I think a lot of people just got lost in it and just, you know, didn't quite get it. And then, of course, there's the 800-pound elephant in the room, uh, which was called E.T. Yeah. And E.T. came out. And E.T. just blew everything away, you know. And E.T. is about this cute little alien that's lost and a little boy, you know, helps him. And, you know, it's the most Spielberg of Spielberg movies. And Blade Runner is not a Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so that's why it failed. But then, interestingly enough, one of the um, guys who ultimately wound up being one of the producers, although he started as a completion bond guarantor, a guy named Jerry Parenchia, bought out the Nelson Film Library. And the Nelson Film Video Library, uh, the rights from Warner Brothers, although they still had them, reverted over to this video company that now one of the producers of Blade Runner owned. So all of a sudden, Blade Runner was playing on early cable TV, and it was also in video stores. It was in horrible pan-and-scan crop oh, yeah. copies, you know. But all of a sudden, people who hadn't seen it, they could pop it into the... And this is at the dawn of home video. And they go, oh, how did I miss this one, Right. And it grows and it grows and it grows. And then in 1990, they unearthed the 70 millimeter work print by accident and show it at a festival in L.A. And it's a completely different version of Blade Runner. Right. It's but you know the one that they had for the Dallas and the Denver previews in May of 1982. And this was before the voiceover, and it's got different like shots and you know and all this kind of stuff. And people are going, "Whoa, there's a whole different Blade Runner out there, right?" So the next year, it shows up at the New Art Theater, which is a repertory house in Santa Monica, and it sells out every night. And so what had happened is all of this interest had been building up. And now Ridley Scott is in between doing Thelma and Louise and 1492 Conquest of Paradise, right when this is happening. And they go to him and they say, well, you can finally do the Blade Runner you wanted. And he's fried. He goes... He says, look, I really don't have time to deal with this. He says, I'd love to do this. He says, but take out the narration. He says, drop that stupid, bad, phony ending that we had to put in, you know, where they drive off into the mountains, which, by the way, are outtakes from The Shining, the Stanley oh, really? Kubrick. Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, wow. no, Ridley actually called Stanley Kubrick. And Kubrick said, you can use anything for that ending except what we used in The Shining. And they're anamorphically different. And they stretched the shining because like you know kubrick liked to shoot in 185 and you know and blade runner is at a much wider aspect ratio so if you were to squeeze those things back to their proper aspect ratio you'd see jack nicholson's volkswagen <laughs> you know, going, <laughs> it's hilarious you know oh wow yeah but that was all because of like people panicking because the preview cards came back originally in 82 people being confused and they thought it was too dark and it had a bad ending so they stuck on at the last second that stupid happy ending yeah so in 1992 they uh, ridley says take that phony ending out take the bad narration out and put my unicorn dream back in which is where harrison ford is this, you know kind of like drunk at the keyboard and like daydreaming and he has a daydream about a unicorn and then that's the first indication in 10 years that he might be a replicant because it ties in with the tinfoil unicorn later. How does Gaff know what his memories are, his dreams are, right? Right. But Ridley doesn't really have time to do much else. So Warner Brothers re-releases it and calls it the director's cut. But it's not the director's cut. <laughs> not at all. Exactly. So Ridley goes off again, you know. And in 2000, now by now, I'm kind of like, I've been writing about this movie for so long over the last 10 years at this point that everyone, if it's, if you're, it was a cult movie and I'm kind of like the cult writer about it, right? right. 
So finally around 93, I say, you know, there's so much that I didn't say in all the stuff I wrote and it's getting more popular. I called my agent because I've written over 30 books in different, you know, genres. And I said, let's do a definitive history of Blade Runner and do it what really happened and not make it a tell-all book, but at the same time, talk to as many people as possible, tell everyone how hard it was to make, all the feuds, everyone not liking each other, the money people fighting with each other. The studio actually was fairly supportive, which was odd, because often studios aren't. Um, But, you know, it was a really fascinating story, and Philip K. Dick not liking it, and then liking it, you know, and so on and so forth. So I spent three years doing the book, and the book came out in 96, and it's never gone out of print. Uh, it's in its eighth printing, ninth printing in the United States. It's been in almost 20 territories worldwide. Uh, it's kind of funny. I feel like Boris Karloff when he did Frankenstein, because Boris Karloff made like, you know, a hundred and some movies, but everybody remembered Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've written 30 books and hundreds of articles and short stories and done anthologies like the Splatterpunks anthologies and the Dead Elvis, uh, you know, the King is Dead thing I did in 95. And I've done a Christmas Carol book and, you know, I'm all over the place, but everybody remembers feature noir, but <laughs> yeah. I, but I don't care. I'm happy. You know, that's great. You know, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and and honestly, the reason I did it personally was because by then I'd been in the film industry for mm, almost 20-some years. And I had read few books that really told somebody what it's like to make a movie. You know, what it's really like. Yeah. You know, mostly it's like, oh, this, you know, like they're tell like the devil's candy or, you know, something like that, which is a great book. But it's all about, like, people being egotistical and mean right. to each other. But it doesn't uh, explain all the different departments and how, you know, it's a group effort and everybody has their own, you know, agendas and their dramas and their problems and, you know, and how it really all comes together. And that was kind of my secret motive for for writing that book. And honestly, I'm so gratified by people that come to me all the time and say how much they love that book. And I'm known for that book. and I'm grateful, but I think really I'm I'm secretly happy because at some level I think it touches them and it shows them what hell and 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 and, and what heaven it is to go and make a big movie. And they're all it, it it's always difficult. But Blade Runner was one of the hardest, you know. It wow. really was a it was a hard, hard, hard shoot. And it turned into a fine classic film. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um I wanna ask you about uh um, RoboCop and and Starship Troopers and all that, but before that, I think we need to address what may be a elephant in the room, which is that all of this is stirred up again in the last year with Prometheus coming out and all of these rumors about movies tying together and all of the things that you know. Oh well, they used elements from Alien and Blade Runner, so clearly the computers are the same, so they must be the same movie. Um, well, a lot of these um, rumors. <laughs> and of course, the you know now famous Peter Whalen memo that came out in the Blu-ray, you right. know, as an Easter egg, where he he essentially says that Eldon Tyrell was his mentor, right? And that you know they stopped making replicants and instead made robots like you know David and Prometheus and like Ash and Alien because yeah. they're they're later down the line, right? Um, that all is recent. That's oh, yeah. not something that you know was always in the cards or that people wanted to do. Um, when Ridley finally decided to do Prometheus, um, there was also uh, concurrently, because 
Ridley, uh, uh, interestingly enough, Ridley did not care about any of his legacy for a long time because he's forward thinking. Yeah. It took him a long time until like really the mid 90s to like start to look back and go, oh, you know, I've done all these other movies. Maybe I should like, you know, talk about them or, you know, (laughs) I know it sounds crazy, but like, you know, he was more interested in whatever was in front of him. Right. Um, So about a year and a half ago, uh, and I won't say where I heard this. Um, but very reputable. Uh, I heard that there was a conscious effort on Ridley's part to incorporate elements of the alien universe into the sequel to Blade Runner because they both had, in retrospect, thematic similarities. Yeah. One, you know, the corporate control. Two, the artificial humans. Three, you know, the deep space exploration that leads into things that, you know, really you shouldn't be involved in. And the off-world colonies, you know, which are in Blade Runner, and you never know really what's, what are they? Are they, are they really good places, or are they yeah. just hell holes, you know? And I think that maybe a year and a half ago, there started to be some very active and serious thought about, well, we're going to do Prometheus. And Prometheus is, is a sequel, but it's not a sequel. Right. And it can go in its own direction. But there are elements here that are very similar now that the way we've decided to go with Prometheus to the original Blade Runner. So let's try to incorporate maybe elements of both of those. Um, my opinion is it, it could very well work. Uh, certainly all the talent on board is first rate. Hampton Fancher, the original writer, is back. Ridley Scott is Ridley Scott. Um, but as, and I'm saying this purely as a film buff and a film lover and a historian, uh, lightning in a bottle is very difficult to catch twice. Mm. And one of the big reasons uh, in my mind that Blade Runner was always successful, and you don't hear this too often, is that Ridley Scott was very uh, depressed and uh, emotionally uh, very upset about the death of his older brother, Frank, who had died of melanoma. And uh, he was a merchant marine, British merchant marine captain or something like that. But they were very close, and he died very quickly. And Ridley was prepping Dune for Dino De Laurentiis, the one that David Lynch ultimately did. But it was taking a long time. The script wasn't getting there. And Ridley says, I have to do something now. And Ivor Powell, who was the associate producer on Alien and also on Blade Runner, and had worked with uh, Ridley for years in his commercials, was the one who originally gave him the first draft of Dangerous Days. And he said, you know, you should look at this again. You know, there's stuff in here. And he goes, okay, i got to work. And so, in a sense, that was therapy for him, Blade Runner. But Blade Runner, to me, is about death. It's not about life. It's not about soul. It's about, like, the quest for more life. You know, yeah. and and it's all the finality of it, right? All the replicants die, and the replicants are stand-in for us. They're all looking for their maker, and finally one of them gets to their god, who's Tyrell, and Tyrell says, tough, buddy, you've got this long to live, but, you know, have a good time while you do it. And he kills his god. And now that's very mythic, you know? Yeah. That's very classical, right? And Deckard, you know, and Rachel, you know, Deckard has fallen in love with something that's going to, you know, die within four years. And maybe if he's a replicant, he will too. And everything is saturated in gloom and decay and disintegration and corruption. So for me, the sense of mortality and finality 
uh, is really what's underneath Blade Runner. And I think that all comes from Ridley. Now, this is totally my opinion. Yeah. You know, but I don't think that's been discussed enough. And people talk about, you know, yeah, this and that. And, you know, there and, and Blade Runner does have many levels. I mean, Ridley always used to call it a 700-layer cake, mm-hmm. you know. And, and he used that reference to the visuals. Yeah. But, but also there were clearly some thematic you know, uh, complexity to that movie, which is one of the reasons why it's endured. Yeah. And it's also one of the few Ridley Scott movies that really has an emotional kick. You know, I mean, if it, if it's weird in a way, you know, Oh, by the way, it was always meant to be a heavy metal ref. I mean, he, he said heavy metal, heavy metal, heavy metal, heavy metal. He got introduced to heavy metal when he was making the duelist by Evor Powell again, same guy I mentioned before. And then he fell in love Ridley with Mobius's work. And, you know, got Mobius involved in Alien. And uh, by the time that Blade Runner came around, he said, I want to do a heavy metal movie. Wow. So, that, so that informs it as well. So there's all these different elements, you know. But for me, it's about the, the end of life. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's interesting you say that that was about a year and a half ago that that started happening because that would have been when they were pretty deep into Prometheus. Yeah, exactly. and, and if you look thematically at what Prometheus is about, I mean, there are, there are almost exact same scenes where people go to their god and say how do i get more life yeah uh, i mean they that is the, the one point where i could see David like goes to the yeah yeah he rips his head off yeah yeah exactly <laughs> like there are there are so yeah. many questions about that are, that are to me almost link that movie thematically more with blade runner than it even does with alien like now the problem um, and again uh and i don't say that and i don't say this to be um obnoxious or aggressive no. or 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 arrogant but if you start to repeat yourself, nah. you know, there's always a possibility that you end up being your own pastiche. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm of two minds with this Blade Runner thing. It could be Ridley's crowning jewel. You know, it really could be something spectacular and something worthwhile. But how do you capture all of the elements that happened in 1980 and through 1982 and, and make them happen again? I mean, they're all accidental. You know, it was all just what was happening then in their lives and in the in the general culture. And how do you replicate that? You know, I mean, it's I don't know. You know, maybe maybe it's possible. Yeah. But I'm I'm always a bit skeptical. And also, I hate remakes. I mean, (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, I understand why it's an economic necessity. Yeah. Uh, Studios from the time when I used to be, you know, a suit working in like dozens of pictures. um, There was still a bit of wiggle room. Uh, in what you could do in terms of creativity. But now, um, you know, film studios are very small subdivisions of major multinational corporations. Right. And they don't care about anything in court, you know, in terms of script or, you know, like acting or story. What they care about is, uh, for instance, Sony will spend $300 million on a Spider-Man movie because if it makes 500 or 600 million dollars it's not that it goes to the studio it goes to the sony stockholders whose stock then goes up one two or three points and that's worth billions of dollars mm. and so it's not in any way shape or form attached to the film you know the film is of no interest you mm. know it's it's like they're making blenders or pencils or burgers you know they don't care yeah. You know, and there's also this mindset now about what they call the four quadrants, which are the four age groups. And it's everything boils down. It's always been a bottom line money business. Don't you know, everyone knows that. But now it's gotten to the point where the, the, the creativity of being able to go off and do something that might 
in turn lead to something better is so hard. Yeah. So hard. Well, I, I mean, that, things like Looper that just came out. Yeah. That's an anomaly. You know, <laughs> you know yeah. that that got yeah. made. You know, that's that's. Oh yeah. You don't see a lot of loopers these days. No, no, you yeah. don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the good thing is that when, when you see interviews with Ridley, and I mean, you, you would know better than we would, we just see what's on the internet, but it seems like he is hesitant to jump into a Blade Runner. Like, he, he's, he's asking the questions, but I think not, he's, uh, he's ready, but, you know, Ridley, has, uh, Ridley is a very busy man. Right. I mean, he has multi, you know, he has what's called RSA, which Ridley Scott Associates, which yeah. does the commercials. He has, I think he still has Black Dog, which does the rock videos. He's got Scott Free, you know, which right. does the films. So, you know, man, his, you know, his, his, his calendar is years ahead. <laughs> yeah. You know, and also he's finishing up The Counselor now, you know, the one that's oh, with that's Michael right. Fassbender and Penelope Cruz and, you Cormac know, about McCarthy. the, yeah, and the Cormac McCarthy original, which I'm really yeah. looking forward to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, poor Tony Scott right in the middle of all that, yeah. you know, which is still a mystery, you know. Yeah. I've heard some things, which I won't discuss. No, 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 you no know? I don't want to know. But uh, I'm sure some of the information will come out, you know. But I, I feel, and I say this with with utter sincerity, I feel terrible for Ridley. Because yeah. Ridley is your classic Yorkshireman. He's he's from the northeast of England where it's hard scrabble and, and, and the most English of the English where they really, they're tough and they don't show their emotions and they, and they work really hard and, you know, they're just tough guys. They're yeah. tough monkeys. But, you know, he lost his older brother. And now he's lost his younger brother. And, you know, he's the last one. And, you know, it must be, I can't even imagine, you know, what's going through his mind. Yeah. I'm, for, uh, I'm, I'm glad that at least he had something that he was working on, you know, yeah. so he can, you know. Trying to get through do, it. Do therapy, I guess. You know? <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I have a tremendous amount of uh, sadness and sympathy oh, when it absolutely. comes to that. Yeah. yeah. I met Tony a number of times, too. So, you know, it was kind of. It was a shock. Yeah, it's one of those yeah. stories you read. You're like, really? Oh yeah, I was I was out of town when it happened. I I couldn't I could not believe it. Yeah, I mean, it was, a lot of people couldn't believe it and still yeah. don't. I mean, because there were interviews. Well, anyway, um, um, I I gotta ask you a question because um, I was reading your bio uh, that they handed out today, and uh, one of my favorite horror movies of all time you worked on. And it's a Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, um, Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. yeah, and uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I always understood it as um, John Russo, who wrote Night of the Living Dead, wrote a script for Return of the Living Dead. That's correct. And Dan O'Bannon got it, and he, instead of making it a horror movie, he decided he's going to make it kind of a dark comedy. Um, well, yeah, it's tangled, uh, but um, if, if there is a, uh, I think it's uh, called Return to the Living Dead, a documentary that was done last year uh and it's two hours long and it's on dvd and it's the ultimate making of you know what happened on return of the living dead yet it's out there it's out there um and i'm on it i'm one of the talking heads on it um but i i essentially was the orion rep for that movie and uh, again one of those movies that nobody else wanted to deal with give it to salmon <laughs> you know? but i knew who dan o'banner oh was, yeah. you know but originally it was going to be done by toby hooper Really? Oh, yeah. And Toby Hooper was supposed to do it after Life Force. And Life Force dragged on and on and on and on. And Russo had had a falling out with George Romero and some of their partners. And kind of like the rights got split up. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the, the problems was is that the phrase Night of the Living Dead was never trademarked or copyrighted yeah. because of the original distributor. 
And so essentially what happened was uh, Russo went and wrote his own screenplay, which was about a bunch of religious fanatics who uh, were in a kind of like a uh, Amish kind of community who were burning, you know, the living dead. And um, from I remember reading it and thinking it was interesting, but, you know, not all that good. And... Um, Sorry, Richard. <laughs> um, but uh, 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 a company uh, that was run uh, by, uh, uh, who was it? Um, Daly and Gibson and David Hemmings. Uh, Hemdale, that's what it was. Uh, they got the rights to it. And they gave it to Toby Hooper. And Toby was going to do a rewrite and then shoot it. And then that didn't happen. So Dan O'Bannon did the script. And Dan looked at it and said, you know, well, if we're going to do The Return of the Living Dead. And Dan Dan always, Dan was a very prickly personality. I always got along with him quite well, but Dan didn't get along with a lot of people. Yeah. And part of it was the fact that he was blazingly intelligent and kind of had a um, really bad experience on Alien, where he essentially got fired off at the production and uh, moved out of London. And so he had a chip on his shoulder to begin with about suits and things like that. Um, but also, Dan suffered from Crohn's disease, which was a terrible uh, intestinal disorder, and it killed him eventually. That's what he died of. And he was ill during the making of that. And so, and he would get better, and then he'd get ill. So it was always, you never knew where you were with Dan. you know. And there were other personal problems as well. Um, but... He did the script, and he put in the punk stuff. He put in, like, the sense of humor. He put in the more, you know, dark comedy and kind of really changed the whole story, you know, and turned it into the, you know, the thing. Did you know that, that Night of Living Dead was real? That it really yeah. happened, you know? Oh, that Clue and, yeah, that part exactly. is so yeah. brilliant. Yeah, well, Clue was the last actor to be hired, and he was hired while they were already shooting. And really? that was one of the reasons he and Dan had this huge fight during the whole show because... Um, Dan didn't really direct him and, and Clue was like an old hand and Dan could be arrogant and condescending and you know and Clue didn't like that at all <laughs> and it, there was a lot of friction between those two um, but long story short uh, Toby couldn't do it so Hamdale said well there's the writer let him do it and Dan had been angling to direct for a long time and then it turned into a very contentious and difficult and, and short uh, scheduled production and uh, Linnea Quigley was great. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was a real trooper. Uh, Jewel Shepard <laughs> Shepherd, uh, caused a lot of problems with a lot of people, and, uh, and just because of Jewel's personality. But everybody loves Jewel now. That's all, you know, gone. Beverly Randolph, who played Tina, uh, was a bit um, conservative and very much like her character, but a real sweetheart and a good, good actor. Uh, but Dan made her fall down a, a series of stairs over and over and over, you know, for one shot, which is in the movie, mm -hmm. and uh, banged her up so badly that to this day she's not a real big fan of Dan O'Bannon. Oh, and William Stout, Bill Stout, who was the production designer, that was his first credit as a production designer. And Bill and I go back to the early 1970s because we're both from San Diego. And I, Phil Tippett, Greg Bear. William Stout, we're all about the same age, and we all kind of knew each other when we were fans and just getting started, and then we all went up to L.A. So I always followed Bill's career, and Bill and I had worked on the first two Conan movies where he was you know, doing a lot of design work on that. So Bill and, and, and Dan had their, had, their, had their frictions, but Bill was like really eternally grateful to Dan 
for doing that, you know. Uh, but the whole idea of the funny zombies and putting in, you know, the, the punk music and, you know, a lot of that was Dan's, but there were other people who were involved in it too. And then it came out and it was just like Blade Runner, you know. Nobody, <laughs> nobody went and saw it, you know, and the studio just dumped it. And the famous line, and I say this in the documentary, was we used to have these departmental head meetings at Orion every Friday where the heads of the department, I was a department of one, so I'd be there, you know. And I remember that the head of production stood up and he says, we have all these movies on our slate coming out and blah, 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 blah. And he sits down and I put my hand up. I go, Charles, his name was Charles Glenn. I said, you forgot Return of the Living Dead. He goes, why would we even talk about Return of the Living Dead? And I said, well, listen, I said, you've seen the, have you seen the dailies? He goes, no. And I said, well, I've been out on the set and I, I've been talking this up for like three months and I'm going to cons with it. And, you know, this is actually not a bad film. It's not going to make hundreds of millions of dollars, but it's going to be a law. I mean, it's going to make a profit. He looks at me and he goes, Mr. Salmon, we at Orion consider horror movies to be a half step above pornography <laughs> and he was completely serious and wow. he said we don't want to hear any more from you and yeah. that was it for that meeting you know so that's that's a kind of thing i i put up with you know when i was there you know yeah. and and but i had good experiences too but then it came out and you know it kind of did okay but then again home video you know and everyone went hey this movie rocks you know and so finally it found its audience but uh, it's what a game you know it's just yeah. crazy but in the end, quality usually wins out, you know? It does. That's one of those movies that, because um, I'm a zombie movie fan, yeah. that I just, the tone of it's so goofy. But it's serious. But there's, but serious. I mean, there's, uh, I think they're the, one of the scariest moments in the movie is those uh, paramedics are talking on the thing and they shut the door and then they're just bombarded yes. with these zombies. And it's one of the movies where you can't defeat the zombies. Right. I mean, uh, there's that one zombie where they're in the mortuary and about to be burnt mm -hmm. and she's still alive. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a it's half a, corpse. Half yeah. corpse, yes. Yeah. And, of course, uh, Tar Man is amazing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, of course, the, the capper to the paramedic scene is after they killed the zombie says, Send more paramedics. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and what people and don't you know, laugh. too, is yeah. um, that movie started the zombies eating brains. Everyone yes, of course. thinks it's a lot older than that. And it also had fast zombies. It which, did. You know, didn't up, they weren't really around before then. You know, George Romero, why they move slowly in his movies? Because he said that they were, you know, decayed and that the ankles would not hold your weight if you were actually decayed. And if you started to run, your ankles would break off and you'd just fall. So he actually had a reason for having kind of slow. I mean, they they yeah. move fairly fast, yeah. but you know. But he still to this day he goes, it just makes no sense. He says, if you're dead and you're decomposing, your legs are going to break. Well, he has that joke in Diary of the Dead where the film crew is filming, yeah. and uh, he you know the director saying, hey, if you're dead, you won't move that fast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so and that, and that's right out of George's mouth. You know? He's always been like that. George is a sweetheart, by the way. He's one of a really nice. Oh people. man, I, I love listening to him talk about his movies because yeah. he's one of the those guys he just seems so nice and unassuming well and he's also <laughs> um what you would now call an indie filmmaker you know yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean well seriously i mean he you know most of his product has been done outside of the system and when he went into the system he basically got co-opted and then got out of the system again yeah you know and some guys you know work very well in hollywood and some people just should never go close you yeah. know 
So, RoboCop or anything? RoboCop? Uh, well, I, well, <laughs> I want to ask you two quick questions before we get to Robo. I know Brad's dying to get to RoboCop. But, uh, first of all, are you still friends with Douglas Trimble? I saw Doug the last time in 2007 at the Bradbury Building, where yeah. they had the uh, big after. The, there's a, 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 a group called the Jules Verne Society that is in Los Angeles, and they're a high-end kind of science fiction fantasy fan group. But they 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 have resources and uh, they go all the way back to Jules Verne and they tend to put on very lavish celebrations of all kinds of films mm. and so they had a screening of for the 25th anniversary of Blade Runner, uh, I th- uh, it was at a theater um, downtown and I can't remember oh the Million Dollar Theater that's mm. where it was yeah you know where the where the uh, uh, outside when Deckard's crossing to go to the Bradbury Building. And you see the, you know, the Mexican for the, you know, the million dollar thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure it was there. I could be wrong. It's been a while since I. Right. But anyway, the after party was at the Bradbury. And and Warner Brothers had completely done it up with mannequins and lasers and fog <laughs> machines. And everybody who was everybody was there. And Doug was there. Sean Young was there. Joanna Cassidy was there. Katie Haber was there. Um, uh, uh, Patrick Stewart, you know, Captain Picard, he was there. Shatner was there for a bit. You know, there was, it was just unbelievable. And Doug was there. And, you know, and I walked over and I said, remember me? And he goes, robots and Blade Runner. And I go, yeah, I go, you got it. You know, oh, okay. so he remembered from Silent Running, you know. Oh, so. I, I was just curious if you've gotten a chance to see any of, any of his weird you know, 600 frame per second movies or whatever. Oh, no, no. He, uh, uh, I've forgotten what it was called. Um, something scan. Um, uh, film scan? It, uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I think it's film scan. I, 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 I might not be right on that. But no, he, he was doing the 60 frame per second uh, uh, process as early as the 1980s and the 1990s. And in fact, um, I was invited to something at the same theater that they showed the 70 millimeter version of Blade Runner at the Westwood uh, Bruin Theater in Westwood. And uh, I w- they, they had a demo reel, and right in front of me was Mick Jagger. <laughs> and I, I'm serious, because Jagger was a, you know, a potential investor in this process, and uh-huh. there was only four or five people, and I saw this little guy come in. You know, after the lights went down, and he plopped down with like two or three other people, and this guy who was with him, he leans over and he goes, "That's Mick, ja- that's Mick Jagger." <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? You know that? And, and then he got up and he left. But um, yeah, no, Doug has been trying to get that going for decades. Yeah. And what's bizarre about it, if you see it, especially on a big screen, it's 3D without 3D. It yeah. is so lifelike. It's sk- it, for for about five minutes. You have to adjust because it's 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 palpable. Yeah, you can reach into the frame. You're not wearing glasses, right? You know, I mean, so it's if it if 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 they do it, you know, it would be great. Of course, the problem is then you have to retrofit all your projection booths. Yeah, and you know now that it's uh, you know DCP the digital cinema projection, and you know now where they just have the you know hard drives where they just like pop them in. You know, it might be easier to do. Yeah. But, um, you know, more luck to him. You know, he's been trying for a long time to get this thing going. But he's a visionary, and it takes a lot of um, after-the-fact capital to refit a lot of projection booths around the world. And that's where people start to draw the line. Yeah. Well, and you got to retrain some, some viewers. Cause like oh, at, at oh yeah. Because, like, on this year, people saw, like, the, the couple of minutes of 
of uh, the Hobbit, and nobody was impressed. But that's because you don't have enough time to use to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm interested to see what happens with the Hobbit. You know, there it is, lightning. You know, being in a bottle, can it happen again? (laughs) Well, yeah, Yeah. exactly. exactly. (laughs) Uh, And then right before we go to uh, Robocop, what is your favorite version of A Christmas Carol? The Alistair Sim version. Yeah. Yeah, 1951. The, yeah, exactly. It yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> he, he's, and I've seen dozens of them, you know, yeah. up to the more recent. I, I even saw the Kelsey Grammer right wing. Oh. Did, have you seen that one? Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah. like, a, it's a, it's a liberal bashing Christmas carol. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which is an interesting take. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I've always loved the Alistair Sim. I mean, he's a wonderful Scrooge. It's got that good, dark, gothic, Dickensian atmosphere and you know when when they really get into it it's it's frightening oh, you yeah. know and you really get this feeling of what a mean miserable bastard Scrooge is <laughs> and at the same time he goes through very gradually you know that that conversion and of course Alistair Sim was one of the great eccentrics oh yeah and he was such a wonderful actor and you know and it, and when he's dancing doing that jig on Christmas morning label, and, you label, know, label, label, label. oh yeah. yeah yeah there's so much that's good about that and it's sad you know, there's there's a lot of melancholy in that film as well. So yeah, that's definitely my favorite. Right, Mickey's, that, Christmas that, made, that made me so <laughs> that made me so happy just then. Uh, okay, how'd you get involved in uh, at, uh, RoboCop? RoboCop was like uh, very much like Return of the Living Dead. Um, I'm I was at Orion Pictures, and I was asked to be the publicist on RoboCop. And I had to go to John Davison and saying, well, you know, I actually, Dino DeLaurentis has just hired me for the DeLaurentis group as an executive, and I've left Orion. So I'd love to go and be on location in Dallas with you and be your unit publicist, but in all conscience, I can't do it. I can't believe that you don't want to do this. You know? And because and we, we had met and we'd known each other for a long time, uh, but we really got to know each other on the Twilight Zone movie because Joe Dante, he was the producer of the Joe Dante mm. segment. Yeah. And, um, and I was on that set with my wife and I did a long uh, article. I unfortunately was around almost to the helicopter crash mm. and uh, got to know Vic Morrow and Jennifer Jason Lee visited the set when she was only like 13, 14 years old. Mm. You know, and so, and John Landis, I was doing a career profile for the old Twilight Zone magazine, which was the cover story. And so I was around a lot for that. Um, but John said, hey, you know, like, I want you to come work on the first Robo, you know, in production. And I said, you yeah, know, I'd love to. And he looks at me and he says, I get the feeling you're going to turn me down. And I go, <laughs> I go, I have to, you know, because yeah. like, you know, I'm at this other studio now and it, and it wouldn't be fair. So I go to the other studio. Well, in the interim, that studio blows up and you know it goes out of business because they did a whole bunch of movies they did great movies like blue velvet and manhunter and you know uh, some really good lasting films but they also did movies like taipan and you know maximum overdrive the stephen king oh. thing you know and Ty- taipan was the one that broke the back of dealerettis entertainment group wow. and so suddenly i'm free and orion wants me back and robo is just about ready to go into post-production so i get a chance at the very end to go in and see them shooting in dallas and then they did a lot of pickup work in san pedro uh, for the part where murphy gets his head blown off and that's a rob botine puppet by the way and um also uh the stuff where uh, robo like slams his hand through the uh um TV monitor that's got the uh, pre-recorded real estate pitch. All that was shot in, you know, this funky, you know, old uh, auto assembly plant in San Pedro. 
And I, I did one of my making ups. You know, I had my cameraman down there and <laughs> I show up and John goes, I thought I didn't hire you. That was his first word. <laughs> and I go, hey, man. I said, I'm, I'm back at Orion, you know, and it's like my picture. You know, they, they assigned it to me. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, whatever you want, you know, I'll do. And, and, and John and I are like kindred spirits. I mean, we both grew up on, we're literally within a month of each other's age. And we're both hardcore film nuts. And, you know, we've seen, you know, he has his own thing and I have my own thing. But we've seen a lot together. We go to the movies together all the time. And we went and saw John Carter when it came out, you know, nice. in L.A. Cool. Well, it wasn't all that cool. Well, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it was, yeah, we went and saw it. Um, but John and I, in a sense, we've never lost the, uh, our childhood uh, love of cinema and yeah. film. You know, we were, we were the movie brat generation, you know, and we, and we still just love film. But anyway, um, so I uh, um, uh, I remember when I met Paul Verhoeven, everyone was saying, you know, like, watch out for Paul Verhoeven. He's crazy. He's like, he's always, <laughs> he's always angry, you know, and this and that. And it was that shot where Robo rams his hand in. And that wasn't uh, an actor. That was actually a prop that was on a big hydraulic press that they could push from behind out of camera and just slam it through that thing, right? So I got my camera guy to do, you know, pickup shots of this. And we can't get an angle because it's a second unit and they're real tight around mm -hmm. this thing. And here's Paul Verhoeven's trailer right behind it. And I look, I go over to John and I say, John, if I go in and I knock on Paul Verhoeven's door and ask to go up on top of his trailer with my tripod and shoot this what do you think he's going to say and he goes he smiles and he goes he could say anything <laughs> and i said well the worst he can do is say no yeah and so like he had seen me around verhoven had seen me around and uh he never talked to me but he knew i was from the studio and uh i knocked on the door and it flies open and he had this like i remember this really cool leather jacket on but he looked really tired this was towards the end of it he goes Vop! just like that he goes Vop! And I go, you know, you've probably seen me around, Mr. Verhoeven. My name is Paul Sam, and I'm with Ryan. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing, you know, some of the marketing and the publicity. And this is kind of like, you know, my favorite picture. And I'm, I'm your guy at the studio. And he goes, well, wh what are you bothering me for? And I said, well, I said, you know, like, you used to shoot documentaries in the Netherlands, right? And he looks at me and goes, yeah. And I go... And you, I'm sure, had times when, you know, you really had to get the shot, right? And everybody said you couldn't get it. And he looks at me and goes, yeah. And I said, are you sleeping now? And he goes, no. He says, I'm just sitting, you know, reading. And I said, oh, are you studying? He goes, no, I'm just reading a book. And I said, well, would you mind if I and my cameraman crawl up on top of your trailer and put our tripod up and shoot this thing because we need it for the thing? He goes, oh, yeah, sure. And he closes <laughs> it. And, you know, and, and from that moment on, Paul and I have always gotten along. You know, I stay cool. out of his way when he's shooting yeah. because, you know, I mean, that's one of the things people who aren't in the business understand is that um, there's a reason why there's so-called A-list directors. I mean, they're, the, they're, they're, they're world-class professional filmmakers. They'd have no time for bullshit. You know, their, their life is 24-7 on that picture and everything else, it's just about the picture, you know, so stay out of their way if you can't be with a program, right? But if you are, and if you're like, you know, there to support and you stay out and maybe make them laugh every now and then, <laughs> you know, and understand what they're going through, then usually you, you can, you know, I mean, Jim Cameron is like, you know, the, the, the you know, really well known for, you know, screaming at people. He won't scream at someone unless there's a reason, though. 
Jim knows so much about the technical aspects of filmmaking, you can't fool him or bullshit him. And he's got eyes in the back of the head. I mean, if somebody can be up in the perms or the, ra- or the what they call the perms, the rafters of a soundstage, and he might say have a 5K of light, and this guy will be up behind Jim, and Jim will yell, Daniel, that light is not in the right place. And he's, uh, how does he know this, you know? I mean, but it's right. It's not in the right place. Wow. You know? So they're perfectionists, you know? Now, they have different ways of, they have different styles of working. And Paul, to my experience, having been on three or four pictures with him now, um, normally only explodes when there's a good reason for it, you know? He's going to get what he wants to get, and some people think he's crazy because of that. But I don't. I think he's just doing his job. You know, his job is to put stuff on film that people have never seen before. And he's going to do it, you know. So as long as he doesn't kill you, (laughs) it's all cool. Cool. Brad, do you have a question? (laughs) I do have a question, but he may not have an answer for it. Um, Since you've worked at Orion, uh, one of my favorite pictures is Batteries Not Included. Do you have any involvement in that? Was that in Orion? I thought that was Universal. Oops, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have a story. My friend uh, Mick like Garris, uh, you know, wrote the uh, uh, screenplay for that. Yeah, Mick Garris uh, was very instrumental in getting me into Hollywood. Uh, he wow. put in the good word for me at a few studios, and Universal ultimately hired me because of Mick Garris. And so, in fact, uh, when I uh, did the second Splatterpunks anthology that I edited in '95. I think I put one of Mi- I think Mix in both of them, but I publicly thanked him. I said, you know, hey Mick, you know, if it hadn't been for you, you know, I wouldn't be in movies. So, shout out to you, Mick. His <laughs> Masters of Horror is awesome. Masters of Horror is great. It yeah. is. There's and some fa- really fabulous. He stuff has great interviews on Fearnet too with uh, horror icons. Sure. He's yeah. just a cool guy. Yeah. Well, Mick's uh, production company is called Nice Guy Productions, and he is a nice guy. Always has been. Yeah. So, uh, actually, what are you working on next? Like, what's your next big? Well, I've been working uh, since I shuttle back and forth between, you know, literary projects and film projects uh, for four years now. There's a woman named Katie Haber who was one of the producers of Blade Runner. And she and I uh, were among maybe five or six people who were around that production who actually thought while I was being made that it was a good picture. Mm-hmm. Most of the, there was a crew revolt, you know, a lot of people thought they didn't get it. They said it was stupid, you know, they just didn't get it. But Katie and Michael Dealey, I, Eva Powell, uh, Terry Rawlings, um, William Sanderson, uh, Daryl Hannah, and maybe one or two other people. So let's say a dozen out of a crew of about 200 people, you know, really were behind that picture. So Katie and I, being of like minds, we, we would hang out and talk a lot. And she's English. Uh, we're raised in England. And we got to be friendly, and we kind of kept up the conversation. And years later, we were having dinner, and she goes, I'm, I really miss my family. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that your mom and dad died. And she goes, well, she goes, my mom just recently passed, but I don't mean that. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, well, I lost my family to the Holocaust. And I go, oh, you did? I didn't realize that. And she goes, well, the thing is, is I don't know what happened to them. And so essentially for a period of four years, she and I found out what happened to them. And they were very highly placed uh, Czech Jews who were among the top 
artistic people in all of Czechoslovakia. Her uncle was a guy named Frantacek Zelenka, and he was one of the, like, Czechoslovakia's greatest graphic arts architects and theatrical designers. And he was like, he was famous for all of Eastern Europe. And what happened was in 43, they put all of the Czech Jews into a ghetto in Prague, and then all of them disappeared. And no one knew what happened to them. Well, it turned out they were all sent to this place called Theresienstadt, which is about 70 miles outside of Prague. And it's an old military garrison that was built in the 1700s by Emperor Franz Joseph II for military guys. And it's a small self-contained barracks town with this great big, you know, wall around it and a river on the other side. So it's defensible. And what uh, Himmler and Adolf Eichmann and, you know, um, Adolf Hitler did was take all of the artists and all of the painters and all of the actors and all of the psychiatrists, the creme de la creme of the intellectual and the artistic circles of that part of the world and put him in terrorism. And that was Katie's family. And we found out that that's where they landed and then we found out there was this whole story that no one knows about this camp the only propaganda film shot by the nazis inside a concentration camp it's called the fuhrer gives the jews the city and what they did was they sent all of the old people out before they started to shoot this and had them all murdered at auschwitz and then they repainted it all and fed them all and brought in a film crew and had them playing volleyball and, you know, like swimming and, and saying, see how nicely we treat our Jewish, you know, friends? And, you know, and, and turns out that Katie's uncle was the assistant director on that. No and, you know, yeah. And, you know, and so and I'm only giving you a very small part of this. But this is something we've been working on for a long time. It's called the puppet box. And it starts with Katie coming home one day. Uh, Katie is very much not only in the film business, but she's also always been a social worker and reformer and she uh, helped form the only cricket club in Southern California and it's all down in Compton, California of ex-gangbangers and they are a world-class cricket club <laughs> and they actually tour wow. the world yeah you know and she came back from one of these practices and there was a FedEx box on her step and inside were a bunch of wooden puppets that were 70 years old and it turned out that they belonged to her nephew, who had been killed at Auschwitz. And what happened was that box of puppets and toys had been given to the next-door neighbor of this family and as the Nazis were taking them out. And the mother said, please keep these for, for Martin, little Martin, and when we come back, well, they never came back. And these, these neighbors tracked Katie down to the United States seven no decades way. later. Wow. And it, it starts with, you know, these puppets arriving, and we work backwards oh, so yeah so yeah so that's what we've been doing for now you know and and unfortunately publishing being what it is <laughs> yeah. it's just like the film business you know we could do it as an ebook amazon has approached us and you know and uh we're 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 signed with a really good literary agency which is called wca and out of toronto they're they're what they're one of north america's biggest and most prestigious literary agencies but they're slow and they, you know, Life of Pi, the book. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Well, they bought that, and they're the ones who, you know, developed the film. So that gives you an idea, you know. And yeah. they're and they're very hot about the puppet box, but it's just taking forever to finalize everything. So, 
you know, we slog along. And I, I get to go through all of the uh, Nazi documents at the Museum of Tolerance. And I'm, by the way, I'm not Jewish. I'm Irish-American. I'm Catholic, ex-Catholic. Yeah. Actually, I'm a militant atheist, but that doesn't really, <laughs> that doesn't really matter, you know. Um, yeah. But anyway, to answer in a long way, that's what, yeah, that's what I've been working on for wow. some time now. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, and I'm writing a lot of fiction. I, you know, I've written a lot. I've, I've been nominated for World Fantasy Awards and World Horror Awards and stuff like that. But I keep moving, you know. And so, like a lot of people, stick in one you know, channel. And I, yeah. I've just always been eclectic. And so, you know, I do books, I do movies, I do genre, I do straight stuff. I used to be a musician for many years. Had my own band. You know, used to go around as a folk singer. You know. Hitchhiked across country and met my wife in 1975 at the Apollo Soyuz space shot. She'd never been out of Florida. She hitchhiked back with me. We've been together 37 years. Oh, wow. You know, so it's, you know, just my life's a little unusual. (laughs) (laughs) What is is that uh, that old saying, good stories happen to people who can tell them? Absolutely. Oh, Oh, well, that's the Irish in me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's a a great old Irish word, blarney. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um... So now I've probably used up your next three episodes. Oh, that's fine. We love it. Amazing answers to awesome questions. And we didn't even talk about Conan or anything. I know. know. (laughs) Reed, I've got a book out still that's, uh, I think it's actually because of licensing. It may have just been pulled, but Dark Horse had it for many years and it's over there. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a Conan phenomenon. Yeah. 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 It's yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It is. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. Oh, thank you. I yeah. love I love the uh, the art in it. Oh man. Yeah. Well, it was supposed to be both a visual and a textual representation of the history of the Conan character. Yeah. You know, I go to Cross Plains every year where Robert E. Howard lived and committed suicide in the 30s, and wow. uh, there's about a hundred of us from around the world that go there because it is so hard to get to. And um, it's not like a con per se. It's just like a bunch of like the scholars and, you know, the real hardcore people. And we have barbecues and, you know, when we climb the peaks that he used to, you know, sit in and like write poetry on. And there are still a few people who are in their 90s who knew him, you know, there in this little tiny Texas town. And I drive from L.A., you know, in my four-wheeler, you know, and just like then go off into the desert like Monument Valley and hike around there. And, you know, hey, I drove here, you know, from yeah. L.A., you know. Wow. So, yeah. So. Well, I'm certainly glad that you did. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is great, you know. I mean, Ted's doing a great job oh, here. Oh, it's been yeah, it's, it's been so much fun. Yeah. It's been, and, I, and, oh, here's the plug. If anyone has not come to the Telluride Horror Festival, this is the third year, and it happens in October, and you really should come. This is a really special. It's small, but it's wonderful. It oh, is. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah, It's a good excuse to come to Telluride. And it's yeah. also great to see great horror movies. I mean, the El- Elevator, like I saw today, and Error of the Human Body, Errors of the Human Body, which I saw last night, and Devoured, you know. I mean, they, and there's some quality stuff here. Oh, it's yeah. just not like, you know, like uh, people like uh, with big uh, soup spoons uh, scooping <laughs> brains out of shit. <laughs> Although I love that, too, you know. <laughs> I'm down with that. I think that that happened in a Ridley Scott movie. (laughs) Uh. Yeah, that's true. He fried it up. Yeah. Yeah. He sat there with a dopey grin on his face. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sitting yeah, down with you, us. Paul. Oh, sure, I guys. Can't, I can't wait to pick up Future Noir, actually. Yeah, I know. And I know. while you're talking, I'm like, I really want to watch Blade Runner right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it's a fine film. You know. Is there a place online that people can 
find out about you? Or? Oh, sure. I have a Facebook page, Paul M. Salmon. And if you just Google Paul M. Salmon or Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner, there's one or two hits. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's quite a few pages if you just look them up on Amazon. There is. Yeah. <laughs> we were doing that today. Yeah. I've done a lot of, uh, I've, been, I've been writing for professionally for about 40 years now. I'm oh. very fortunate. And yeah. same thing with films. You know, so they were kind of like parallel, but but different. You know, I just I I'm I'm one of those incredibly lucky people who got to do what he loved as a child and still does. You wow. know, the only thing I wasn't able to make a career out of was music, but that's cool. <laughs> well, because I still love music, it's not like it got polluted with yeah. all the you know the work. I was listening to the Black Keys album on the way up, and that's the great. new new Pink album on the way up, and you know, and uh, what's her name, uh, uh, Ellie Goulding, you know, who is like a kind of a techno uh, electronic dance you know icon <laughs> over in Europe you know but not here you know yeah. so I'm I'm still very heavily into music you know and uh, but for fun awesome you know? cool. is there like a certain thing like you always wished you could have gotten into but you didn't get a chance to no I've learned uh, I've learned not to have regrets you know mm. regrets and resentments kill you mm. you know I mean that's just the philosopher in me you know I've had a I've had a pretty good life you know and I was uh, I was I had a period in my life in the 80s when I could have, let's just say I could have been, um, I could have had like one of these $2 million homes around here in Telluride, and I made a conscious decision not to do that hmm. because I got very close to people like Schwarzenegger and Eastwood and Stallone, and although I, I Eastwood in particular I love. I think he's a great guy, you know, despite the talking to the empty chair thing. You know, I mean, he's, he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a consummate pro, and he's a good guy. He's down to earth, you know, and there's no bullshit about him. He's just he's a he's a good character. Um, but I I I lived with the corrosive aspects of fame and celebrity for a couple of decades, and I just decided for me it wasn't worth it. Hmm. You know, it become, there's a great line in Citizen Kane, the old movie where Everett Sloan, who is uh, kind of the, one of the goofy associates of Kane, is being interviewed after Kane, Charles Foster Kane has died. And they talk about, uh, well, you sure made a lot of money, and Mr. Kane made a lot of money in your lives. And he says, it's easy to make money if all you want to do in life is make money. Yeah. And for me, I wanted to do more. So I'm perfectly happy with where I am, you know. I mean, sometimes it's nasty when you get snowed on out here <laughs> and you don't have the right boots or something, you know, but I can live with that. But if you brought the four-wheel, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I got, I've got my old four-wheel yeah. drive. It's got over 200,000 miles on it. It's still going. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So thank I'm, you. I'm having a good time. Thank you. Thank again, you. Sir. We really hey, thank you, guys. We really, I really appreciate it. it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Again, I want to thank... Paul Salmon, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Again, you know what's great is we've had, remember, he, he was a lot like George's jaunty where he kept on moving him around, and not only did yeah. they not get pissed, on, uh, pissed at us, they, uh, they sat down and still talked to us and were awesome about it. Yeah. So, Paul Salmon, thank you so much, and your knowledge of movies will never be matched. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you can write a 600-page book about making of Blade Runner... You have knowledge that... And it, I love the story about him saying that he thinks Ridley Scott forgot that yes. about Deckard. Oh yeah, and his whole his whole interpretation of of how uh how that the end of that movie changed is really fascinating. Um and because you can see that he was there documenting it mm-hmm. as it happens, you end up co- kind of going like, "Oh, this is actually the only guy in yeah. the world who knows the actual <laughs> and story." There, and if there's one guy who knew, it was definitely Paul. He was the yeah. guy who said, "You know what?" Exactly. Cuz he was in it through with the whole planning of the movie. Right. 
So again, thank you so much. Um, there'll be more of these um, coming up very shortly, and hopefully, hopefully, we'll get to talk to him again next year. Because as you as you heard there at the end, where he started like spitting out little like, other stories that he could tell, I was just like, oh, come on! And of I course, wanna, I want to hear all of them. And then when Brad put in his one question, it was for something that he never did. <laughs> You oh. See now, no, you can't edit it out. About it, so you can't. Oh, edit hey, it sorry out. about that. Until oh, next time, that's great. Uh, we are the real nerds. You can like us on Facebook, like Paul did. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you can also tweet us real underscore nerds. You can call us seven two zero six nerds five. Email us real nerds at gmail dot com. We'll read it on the air unless um, it's a personal message, and we usually don't. If it's a review of a movie, we do. Anyways. Yeah. Or if you want us to read it, just make sure I say, hey, you can read this on the air. You guys are fucking dickheads, and we'll read it. And if you like this interview, tell your friends. Yeah, tell your friends, because it, buy his books on Amazon. You can buy all oh, his absolutely. books on Amazon. Um, his Conan book, I mentioned it earlier in the week. You can get it at comic shops. Uh, we saw I saw it at Mile High Comics this weekend. I've seen it at Coins, Cards, and Comics. I've seen it at Barnes & Noble. His book is beautiful. It's a huge coffee book, and he's written several books. And you should pick them up and buy them on Amazon. And I'm pretty sure... Uh, you can get them personalized if you buy them from him directly. And uh, it's almost Christmas time, and he wrote a, a book about it's it's trivia about the Christmas uh, about a Christmas Carol. So go check that out. Give it to somebody. Oh yeah, what, what's his favorite Christmas? Carol? Uh, I believe it's uh, <clears throat> mine, the Alistair Sim version. Yes. So that was also that. Was, oh, that made me so happy. I know that's great. Anyways, uh, we'll stop talking about the interview you just listened yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs> Bye.